Um, happy 90s Sunday. And you say, why are we doing this? It's just a gimmick. It's summer. We can if we want to. And I really like the 90s worship songs as well. I saw some of you, some of you older folks really were in heaven just like, yes, Lord. I'm trading my sorrows. Um, in heaven, it will, it will only be the worship music around the throne that you like. Not at all. <laughs> it's whatever God likes is what we're going to be singing. So hope you enjoyed some of those songs. Um, yeah, a lot of favorite 90s sitcoms. I have no idea the the one California Dreaming that Ladina was talking about. That must have been like a Myrtle Point um, <laughs> community television show. I have never seen that show in my life, but there was a lot of good stuff. We are in a series called Open Doors, and we this will be our seventh week and the final week of this series. We didn't plan this series at all, um, nor did I expect it to go so long. Um, starting in two weeks, we're going to spend the summer going through the book of Hebrews. And as Abby mentioned, we won't have church service next week. It's July 2nd. It's the 4th of July weekend. So we'd encourage you to spend that time with your community, with your family, with your friends. And we'll be rejoining together here at 10 a.m. only. So um, today is our last 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. service for the foreseeable future. So on Sunday, July the 9th, we'll do 10 a.m. only all summer long. And just keep in mind, and I actually, I have some slides um, that you guys can show from uh, things that are coming up this summer at the very end of my PowerPoint. So July, um, July 9th, 10 a.m. only. And then we have on um, the first Sunday of the month in July, August, and then September, uh, we don't have church on the first, the first Sunday of the month. And um, on August the 6th, the first Sunday of the month, we're going to be having a beach party. And so at the beach party, we're doing uh, water baptisms. You guys can bring your own food and drinks and enjoy each other's company. We'll have a bonfire there at the beach on August the 6th. And then this final little piece of information I'll give you is on the second um, yeah, the second Sunday of August and September, we will be downtown only, and that will be at the Reed Opera House, specifically at the Reed Opera House Ballroom on the third floor of the Reed Opera House. And um, Kim and Kristen and Caleb and Brandon Foote and I all went there um, to check out some of the space that we'll be using for those services. It's a beautiful space. We'll be worshiping in a room that's 153 years old. Uh, with beautiful old windows overlooking the city. And um, so I want to encourage you to invite all your friends to those services. They'll be at 5 p.m. on those days. And we'll be having a block party uh, in the alley behind the Reed Opera House. We have a whole setup where we'll have hamburgers, hot dogs, ice cream, DJ, um, just a lot of great community uh, interactions. So make sure that you mark your calendars for those things this summer. Um, with all that being said, um, if you could do me a favor, please, and if you could um, take out your phone real quickly. And then Abraham, if you could dim the lights just a little bit, I want to encourage you guys, if you could silence your phone and if you could limit uh, moving around or talking so that way we can focus in on this final word um, for this series, open doors, and help eliminate any kind of distraction that we might have. And I want to talk to you today, um, this final week of open doors, just recapping what we've looked at. Um, number one, first week, we looked at this idea of just open doors that we believe we're in a season of open doors, that Jesus says that he is the door, whoever enters in through him would be saved. We talked about how Jesus is knocking at the door of our heart, both the heart of the believer and the believer, to let him in and to abide in every room. Uh, during the second week, we talked about this concept of open heavens, that we believe we're in a season of open heavens where we can encounter the spirit of God, discover our spiritual gifts, and receive a touch from the Lord as God tends to show up tangibly in unique ways throughout human history. And I think we're in one of those times right now. Then week three, we talked about an open opportunity or open effectiveness to reach people for the gospel. That now, though it may seem like the world is resistant to the gospel, um, we're actually seeing people's hearts very soft and open to receive the good news of Jesus. And so it's a great time to share the gospel. We then looked at for the next two weeks this idea of open vision, that there is a season where we are looking for vision for our lives, vision for our church, for our community, that we all have a mission, a reason we exist, but we need to have an idea of where we're going. That's our vision. And we discussed some things we're doing here at this church, as Ladina kind of alluded to. So starting in September, 
Um, we'll be doing one 10 a.m. service here at Sunnyside. Then every week we'll be doing a 5 o'clock service in downtown Salem. It's our vision to continue to reach our community and our city. And then last week, we looked at this idea of open gates or specifically keys to the kingdom. And we discussed that Jesus Christ has given us keys to the kingdom um, to literally open the gates of hell, to go and rescue those who are behind, um, to bind the things that oppress people and to loose people to freedom that they can have in Jesus Christ and that we have the keys of those the keys of the kingdom to do those very things. And so this week, I want to talk to you about this idea of um, in the doorway or standing in the doorway or standing, some people might call it a door jam, but in the doorway is, is what it is I want to discuss for you today. And as we do that, um, I want to go back to the 90s for a minute. And how many of you, when you were a child or you had children, you ate out of a plate that was plastic that had different compartments in it. Anybody have these plates that you had? Usually there were four sections, different pie-shaped sections of these plates. And what you would do on these plates is you would have one section for um, the protein. And we used to call that meat, but today we call it protein. And so there was a section of the plate for the protein, for the meat. There was a section of the plate for a starch like a potato. There was a section of the plate for vegetables or fruit, and, and if you were lucky, there might even be a section for something like jello or a cookie or even a slice of bread. Um, in the Trask family, uh, there is not dinner if there's not bread included, and so hopefully there would be bread. Um, carbs used to be good for you. Hopefully there'd be bread in those compartmentalized plates. And so as you were fed those plates, or maybe as you fed your children those plates, if you were a godly person, if you loved the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God inhabited your heart, you would make sure that you ate out of those compartments one at a time. You would eat um, maybe the vegetable or the fruit and then the starch, and then, then you would eat the meat and then the dessert. And so godly people eat like that. Um, if, if you are a son of the devil or if you um, are, have a proclivity towards sin, and if you um, really want to throw off all natural order that's been created by the Lord in this universe, then you actually might mix those things up. You might stir them up and mix your peas with your potatoes, and it's essentially the gateway to hell um, to do such an atrocity with your food. These things were meant to be eaten one at a time and not mixed. And so we do this, we, we compartmentalize our life like we do these plates. So some of you have a compartment of your life for work. Some of you have a compartment for school. Some of you have a compartment for your relationships, your friendships, your family. And some of you might have a compartment for um, things like church. And we compartmentalize our lives and we don't allow those things to mix together. But that's not really the way that God intended it. And so with that being shared... Let's talk a bit about being in the doorway, being in the door jam, being in between, being not in, not out, but just simply in the doorway. And each of us in this country, we experience people coming to our door, coming over to our house. Um, I get excited when people come and deliver things to our house. I actually enjoy things delivered to my door more than I like going to the store. It's like Christmas every time Amazon delivers a package. So some of you get things delivered. That is a welcome visitor. Those visitors are not welcomed by my dogs, but they are very welcome to our family as we um, open up whatever it is that my wife has ordered without telling me. It's actually almost always the other way around. And um, discover what's inside. Oh, what did you order, Anthony? Oh, just something for, for church. Um, so we all get deliveries, but... Sometimes we get salespeople. How many of you love it when salespeople come to your front door? It's amazing, right? Like knock on your door, try to sell you something. In South Salem, every summer the last two years, there's been salespeople on hoverboards, very futuristic. Um, I especially enjoy the salespeople who have the short white sleeve shirts and black ties and name tags. They have a lot to sell. And so what do you do when these people come over? What do you do when someone comes? Well, number one, you, you hide. Yeah. You pretend like no one is home. And if you've got dumb kids, 
The dumb kids might run in front of the window and look at, there's someone home, you're like, my God, hide under the couch. <laughs> Don't let anyone know we're here. And so some of you might welcome them. Well, please come in, eat with me. So we typically will, will hide and if nothing else, we'll keep them at the porch. Uh, we might talk to the people behind the doorway. Um, we might try to just simply peer around the corner or maybe even talk to someone through the window when you have someone come over. But you don't let them in. When a, when a stranger knocks at your door, you don't know if they're a salesperson or a delivery person. They're just a stranger. Um, you might peek around the door. You might watch them through your ring doorbell. And by the way, I have some very um, blackmailable footage of some of our leaders on ring doorbell footages of some hilarious things that have happened all of them involving Brian's wife, and yeah, <laughs> that, that we, could, we could sell to you at a price. Um, funny things have happened. You might look at people through a front window, or you might just simply like kind of talk to them from the doorway if you have to, but you don't let them in. You don't let someone in your space. But then we can flip it around. Sometimes you have to go to people's houses. Sometimes you have to go to drop something off. Hey, you left this at our place. We're going to drop it off for you. And as you're on your way to drop something off for someone else, you have to indicate that you're in a hurry, if you truly are in a hurry. I'm in a hurry. I've got somewhere to go. And so the person that you're dropping something off to, if they're nice, they're going to say, why don't you come inside for a while? Can I offer you cookies? Can I offer you something to drink? We're just sitting down for dinner. Would you like to join us? But in order to let people know that you're in a hurry, you can't step foot in their doorway. You have to literally stay on the porch. No, I can't. I'd love to stay and visit, but I am in a hurry. Or you might stand in the doorway, but once you step in, you're going to be committed to being there for a while. If you're single, I want to offer some um, solicited dating advice for a moment. If you're on a first or a second date, when you're, when you're parting ways, um, you pull up to someone's house in a car, and, and as you part ways, you might just simply like offer them a hearty, godly handshake. Nice to have a date with you today, sir. And you just step out of the door and make your way in, and you, you wave goodbye, and um, your chaperone's in the back seat, and you guys drive home. Um, maybe if, if your relationship's advanced a little bit more, you might, you might actually walk the person to the door with a chaperone closely behind you. And as you're walking the person to the door, like you, you might offer like maybe like a side hug or you might offer like a, a pat on the back, good time, hope to see you again. Or, or you, might even, you might even go in for a hug. I don't know. But you don't go into the house if you don't know somebody, Right? There are serial killers out there. You don't go into someone's house if you do not know them. And so what does this have to do with anything in, with compartmentalized plates? Well, each of us stay on the porch. We all stand in the doorway. We have others stay on the front porch. We have other people stay in the doorway because it's, it's safe. Because we, we just don't have time. We don't want the intimacy that might lie on the other side of the door. Keeping someone on the other side is an easy way for you to hide what's inside. Let me say that again. Some of you keep people on the outside because you want to hide what's on the inside. There's things that maybe you don't want people to know or see. A lot of times we don't want someone to come in because it's going to mess up what we have going on. My brother-in-law was here at our nine o'clock service and um, I have a tendency towards some obsessive compulsiveness and um, our house is just very neat and in order. And we have, uh, I used to be into Christmas villages and I'm embarrassed to say that now, like what do we like hold hands and watch Hallmark movies while we had these Christmas villages, but we had Christmas villages and my brother-in-law, Mike Yoder, he would come in and like move things in the Christmas village when I wasn't watching just to mess with my obsessive compulsiveness. And he would leave and I would be like, Mike Yoder, I know that you move the man carrying the wreath and the gift one centimeter over and he's further away from the little boy with the porcelain dog than he's supposed to be. And he'd be like, yeah, I know. That's exactly my purpose. But we don't want people coming inside sometimes because we don't want people to mess up what we already have going on. 
But in real relationship, people come inside. In real relationship, we go inside. In a relationship like marriage, you're either in or you're out. You can't just go in and out in, in marriage, for example. You can't go in and out whenever you, you please. You can't just stand in the doorway in marriage. You can't be half in your marriage and half out of your marriage. When you marry someone, you are making an agreement to stay on the inside of the doorway. When you marry someone, you're making an agreement to let someone in. And when you marry someone, you're making an agreement to be all in in the relationship together. So in marriage and in parenting and on teams and on mission, you cannot ride the fence. You can't stand in the doorway. You're either all in or you're all out. There really is no in between. And this is how it is with Jesus. This is how many of us treat Jesus. So many of us live in the doorway in our relationship with Christ, but we never fully go in. John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. So many of us, we hear the call of Jesus to enter in by him to be saved, but we stay in the doorway. And the reason we stay in the doorway is we're hoping that we get some of the benefits from following Jesus without any of the commitment. We want the blessings of Jesus. We want the healing of Jesus. We want the peace of Jesus. And if we're being honest, we just don't want to go to hell. And so we think if we can just get some of those benefits, we don't want the commitment. So we'll stay in the doorway. Most of us really stay on the porch. We don't actually want to go inside. Some of us stay in the doorway. We're not willing to let go of what it would take to let go of to walk inside. Jesus invites everyone in, but in order to come in, you have to leave some stuff at the door. And so many of us are unwilling to let go of what it would take to go into the door. One thing that we deal with in our region is this radical crisis of homelessness and interacting with different people in the homeless community. There have been times where organizations I've worked with have enabled people to get into housing and, and it's an open door for them to receive it, but they can't bring all their stuff in with them. And so as a result, they'll, they'll stay out on the street. Many of us would rather stay on the street and keep our stuff than to fully enter into the door. Some of us stand on the porch. We're, we're not even in the doorway. We're still checking things out, but we're not really willing to peek inside or to step inside. And for those who are married, if some of you treated your spouses like you treated Jesus, they'd already be gone. With Jesus, we're in or out. With Jesus, we're all in or, or we're not in at all. Jesus doesn't want our leftovers. Jesus doesn't want what's left of us. Jesus doesn't want our seconds. He wants all of us. Jesus doesn't just simply want our Sundays. In fact, what matters to Jesus is not our Sundays. It's, it's actually our hearts and the entire thing. And so in marriage, you can't live life however you please. When you marry, you're giving up some rights. And in marriage... You don't get to sleep with whoever you like. In marriage, you don't get to hang out with whoever you'd like. And in marriage, you don't get to do whatever you'd like. In marriage, you don't get to come home when you need to come home. And in marriage, you don't get to come home when you feel like coming home. In marriage, you have to be all in. So why do we treat Jesus like this? Why don't we realize that with Jesus Christ, we have to be all in? We'll display a little bit of commitment to Jesus by showing up at a church on Sunday, fully knowing in our heart that we're going to run around on him on Friday. See, with Jesus, you're either hot or you're cold. And if you're lukewarm, in between being cold and hot, if you're lukewarm, you might as well just be cold. No one really likes lukewarm drinks. Um, 
There are some of you, though, I've seen where I'll, I'll hang out with you an entire day and you will buy like uh, a little like 24 ounce bottle of Mountain Dew in the morning. And I'll see you like at 5 p.m. the same day. I'm like, you're still drinking the same Mountain Dew? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, you're disgusting. <laughs> that thing is room temperature. It's either like it's 35 degrees or nothing. Like you, you can't drink something that's supposed to be cold that's not cold. But some of you, you're the same people that mix your food up together inside of those compartmentalized plates. Some of you I spent time with will buy a Dutch Bros at like 6 a.m. and you're driving home from work at 6 p.m. and you start drinking out. Like you get a new Dutch Bros. Like, no, it, it's still from this morning. I'm like, A, ew, B, there's dairy in that. Three, it's not hot. That's gross. So it is with Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us lukewarm. We're either cold or we're hot. And so in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has a message for a church. This church is in modern-day Turkey. The city the church was in is called Laodicea, and we read this week one. We're going to revisit it and bring everything full circle, and we'll close. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. So we discussed that week one. The non-believer must enter the door that is Jesus, the believer and the non-believer. We must open the door when Jesus is knocking and allow him to come in. But in context, Jesus is literally knocking on the door of this church. Knocking on the door of the heart of the church of Laodicea. And this church in Laodicea, it represents all churches. Jesus is knocking on the door of every church wanting to come in. And this church in Laodicea, they professed they had faith in Jesus. This church in Laodicea, they proclaimed that they entered in through Christ and were saved. And this church in Laodicea professed to have opened the door of their heart to Jesus, but... Their life and their works proved that at most they were standing in the doorway. They weren't all in. And more specifically and in context, Jesus wasn't all the way in. In fact, Jesus, if we're reading the text, he wasn't in at all. He was actually on the porch knocking to get inside. A mentor of mine um, used to be an um, executive pastor at a church right in the center of Hollywood. And one Sunday morning, someone arrived to church early and was knocking on the door to get in and no one paid attention to him. And finally, someone was able to let him in as the service was getting started. And it was um, the guy who plays Jesus on The Passion of the Christ. So Jesus was literally knocking on the door of their church trying to get in. And he was like, who's this, this guy out here trying to get in? Like, he's gonna have to wait till Jesus is out there, guys. It's, it's Jim Caviezel, let him in. But Jesus is knocking on the door of every church wanting to come in. And this church, their, their, their works and, and their behavior showed that, man, he, he's just on the porch. They needed to enter in all the way. They needed to let Jesus in all the way and not just leave him on the porch, not just leave him on the doorway. And so in verse 15 and 16, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context. This is a vision that John the disciple is having at around 100 AD. He's a very old man. He is on uh, the island of Patmos as a prisoner, and he is getting a vision of the end times. But before Jesus gives him this vision, Jesus has warnings for these different churches, seven of them to be exact, and we're represented in all of these churches. And so Jesus says this in this vision John has, and John's writing this to the church. So this church in Laodicea, they get the letter, a message from Jesus, and this is what he says, I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and you're not hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Some English translations say spew you out of my mouth. So Jesus goes on to give them an example. He says, you guys are lukewarm. You're not hot, you're no cold. And they may have said, well, what is he talking about? And he's like, oh, let me tell you why you're lukewarm. And so Jesus gives the reason for their lukewarmness. He says, for you say, this is what you guys are saying about yourself. I am rich. I have prospered. I have need for nothing. Not realizing that you're actually wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, naked. This church thought they were all that. They, they thought that they were all that. They wanted to appear like they were good on the outside, but in reality, they were spiritually bankrupt. It's like you guys say you're rich, but you're, you're actually bankrupt. They were saying that they had their eyes open, but Jesus was like, guys, no, you're actually spiritually blind. They were saying, look at our white robes and our good behavior. And Jesus is saying, actually, your sin is such an affront to me that you're naked in shame. And Jesus lets them know if they're going to give their all to something, what they're going to give their all to needs to be him. So verse 18, it's a, it's a little lost in translation. It's, it's confusing what Jesus is saying, but I want you to look at it all in context. He's like, you guys think you're all that. You're saying, look how wealthy we are. And, and whether they meant that in spirit or naturally, we don't fully know. But like, look how great we are. Look how wealthy we are. Look how healthy we are. Look at our prosperity. And Jesus says, you guys are actually poor and blind and naked. And so in verse 18, he says, this is what I want you to do. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich. Now, again, a little lost in translation, but he's saying, you guys are poor, but if you want to possess real refined gold, here's what you need to do. He says, I give you counsel that you should buy white garments so that you could clothe yourself and clothe the shame of your nakedness and no one would see your nakedness. Jesus is saying, you guys say that you're all good and holy, but you're actually sinful and naked and in shame, and I'm counseling you to cover yourself in what I have to offer and give it all in order to receive it. And he says this, I counsel you to buy ointment or salve for your eyes, to anoint your eyes so that you could see. You guys think that you are real smart and know everything, but you're actually spiritually blind. And I would encourage you, Jesus is saying, give everything you have that you might see. Give everything you have that you might be clothed. Give everything you have so that you could be truly rich in your heart. Jesus is saying the only way to be rich, the only way to have your shame covered, the only way to really be able to see, Jesus is saying it's through me. It's through my life. It's through my death. It's through my resurrection. It's through the salvation I offer. It is through the gift I give you that is the gift of grace. And this is received, we know, in context of the New Testament. It's received by faith. You can't buy salvation, but Jesus did for you. You can't buy um, being clothed from your nakedness. But Jesus bought that for you. You can't blind the you can't buy the ability to see, but Jesus purchased for you the ability to see. And he says, you need to give everything in order to receive what I'm trying to give you. And it's received in faith. And here's what you need to know: what you purchase in faith is better than anything you could ever spend your money on. Put your faith into something. See what the Lord will do with your faith, and what he will give is better than any worldly good better than anything Amazon could deliver. So Jesus is saying, put your faith in me. And to put your faith in Jesus, to spend everything you have on Jesus, what that means is to put your all into him, not be cold, not be lukewarm, but to burn with passion for Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because in Revelation, in the previous chapter, Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus and he's like, hey guys, you're actually doing good works, unlike Laodicea. But you've got this problem is that you're not burning with passion for me any longer. In fact, you're not in love with me. You are not hot. You've forgotten your first love. And so Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Remember where you fell from. Repent of this fact and do the things that you did at first. And here Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea, your works are not put together and you're not on fire for me. You've got a big problem. You need to surrender everything to me in order to possess all I want to give to you. So if you're burning with passion for Jesus, what that will lead to is that will lead to repentance whenever you fail. What burning with passion for Jesus, what being hot 
for Jesus will lead to is allowing Jesus to have permanent access in every part of our life, not just on the front porch and not just in the doorway. And so in Revelation 19.20, Jesus says this. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous, be passionate, burn hot, repent. And here's where we get the verse in context. He's like, you guys think you're all that? You're not. In order to have all you're claiming to have, you need to give everything to me. You need to repent. So he says, guys, I'm here. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm knocking on your door. Would you just let me in? Don't you hear my voice? Let me in and I'll come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. So Jesus is knocking on the door because he loves this church. Jesus is knocking on the door because he loves this church. Jesus is knocking on the door because he loves you. Jesus is knocking on the door to let us know we're not where we're supposed to be. So many of us so often are not where we are supposed to be. Ultimately, Jesus is knocking on the door to let them know that he's not where he's supposed to be. He's on the porch. He's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be inside. Jesus is knocking on the door to invite us to intimacy with him again, to be passionate about him again, to be in love with him again. Jesus is knocking on our door because Jesus wants to come inside. Where is Jesus right now? Is, Is he on the porch? Is Jesus in the doorway? Is he not even on the property? I think most of us, because because we're Christians in church, I would say most of us probably like, Jesus is probably kind of in the doorway. Some of us maybe on the porch. Some of us maybe not even on the lawn. Where is Jesus now in, in my heart, in yours? We need to let him in. So have you so compartmentalized your life Back to that plate analogy. Have you so compartmentalized your life that you have a compartment, again, for work, a compartment for your sex life, a compartment for your addiction, a compartment for that relationship you don't want anybody to know about, so you keep it closed, a compartment for school, a compartment for your parents, compartment for your siblings. It's different. A compartment for your friends. A life filled with compartments is a very complicated life. It's very hard, and we try very hard to keep those things separated. And so as a result, what we have, we have this compartment that we keep for Jesus. And sadly, for most of us, the compartment we have for Jesus is the smallest compartment of all. And as long as we can keep him there, we're good. As long as we don't let him into our sex life, we're okay. As long as we don't let Jesus into our marriage, it's all right. As long as we don't let him into our work, it's cool. As long as we don't let Jesus into our habit, we got to play it safe. Don't let him in. And as long as these lives don't cross over, everything's going to be okay. But how many of you have learned that the plate drops when we try to keep it all separate. It drops and it breaks and everything bleeds into it to one another. Jesus doesn't want a compartment on your plate. Jesus wants to be the plate. He wants to be everything in the plate, on the plate. He wants to consume every part of your life. He wants your entire life. He wants your entire heart. And when you give that to him, you do get relationship. You do get joy. You do get peace. You do have spots for work and play and exercise and school and family and friends and all these good things that God's blessed us with, but it's done his way. And when we do those things his way, I actually think that God who created me knows the way that these things should be done. And if we could embrace that and live the way he's called us to, we would find our lives not always happy, but we can find ourselves in a place of contentment, peace, and dare I say it, even joy. With Jesus, you can't keep him on the porch. 
He can't be in the doorway. He's in or he's out. And for you, you can't be on the doorway. You can't be on the porch of entering into the door that is Jesus. You're either in or you're out. It can't be both ways. You're hot or you're cold. You can't ride the fence. You can't be lukewarm. You can't be in the doorway. Either he's all in or you're all out. So Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and it'll be on the screen if you're watching online or here behind me. This screen was going haywire earlier, so we turned it off. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says this. This is during the life of Jesus. This is out of the mouth of Jesus himself as he's teaching. He says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day Jesus is talking about is the day of judgment. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do great things in your name, Jesus? And then Jesus will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So many of us say, well, I said the sinner's prayer, so I'm, I'm good. I'm all in. Um, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. It doesn't mean that if with a sincere heart you said a sinner's prayer, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, far from it. But Jesus isn't looking for a sinner's prayer. Jesus isn't looking for us to do good works. Jesus isn't looking for us to say, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done. Jesus is looking for us to make him Lord. We can't say, Lord, Lord, if he's not actually the Lord of our life. It's just hypocrisy. He wants it all, the whole thing. No compartments, the whole plate, all the way in, not the doorway, not the porch. You're in or you're out, you're hot or you're cold. You can't be lukewarm. And so Jesus says, not everybody who says they know me, do I actually know? And I love the story in Acts where, where there's these, these seven brothers that are seeing Christians cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And they're like, this looks really cool. And by the way, casting out demons is not something you like, this is something I really want to do. No, it's not. It's, it's not a cool thing to do. It's something where if you're there, if you're called to do it, you do it, but it's not something you seek out. So these seven guys are like, we want to be in on this. And so they went and they found a demon-possessed person. And, and they said, we cast you out in the name of Jesus. And the demons were like, excuse me? said, we know Jesus, and we know Paul, who you're emulating, but we don't actually know you. And so what did the demon-possessed people do? Well, they do what all demon-possessed people do. They strip the seven brothers naked, beat them up, and send them running. Do you know Jesus? Because you're not going to be able to stand in front of Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, look at what I've done. You're not going to be able to stand in front of the forces of demonic darkness and say, Lord, Lord, they're like, actually, you've got no power behind that because Jesus is not your Lord. Not everyone who claims the Lord knows the Lord. And so this is where Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I wish that you were, Jesus actually says, I wish that you were cold instead. Why is that? Because people that are cold can feel the heat a lot more. People that are cold, I believe, are more receptive to the gospel than people who think they're all that and are just lukewarm. People who are cold and have a hard heart towards God and bitterness towards God and who claim that they hate God, they're more receptive to God than those who are following God in name only. Those who are following God in name only don't think they need God. Cold people, I think, deep down know they need God. I would rather witness to an atheist than I would someone involved in a cult or someone who claimed to be a Christian but was not following Jesus because the one who was an atheist is far more receptive. He says, I wish you were at least cold. So what does it take to be hot? Well, to be hot and not cold, to be hot is to enter through the door. To be hot is to abide in Jesus. To be hot and not cold is to open the door and receive Jesus into every room and to make him the master of your house. And this is what most of us don't do. 
They're like, yeah, Jesus, you can come in and live in my heart. And Jesus says, if I come in, it's not your heart anymore. If I come in, it's actually mine. So when you ask Jesus to come in, you're not the head of the house anymore. He is. When you invite Jesus to come in, you don't have rooms in your house. Jesus has all the rooms in the house because it's now his. He transforms you. He changes your heart. He makes you new. He makes you what we say, born again. And so to be hot is not to simply claim that we are hot instead of cold. To be hot is to not just simply do work so that we look like we're hot, so that we have to earn the heat that we are proclaiming. But to truly be hot instead of cold is to know Jesus and to be close to Jesus by getting out of the doorway and getting inside. So to stand in the doorway and not actually enter all the way in, it's basically you just saying, Lord, Lord, look at what I've done. To stand in the doorway is to make ourselves just appear to be hot. And really, to stand in the doorway is to go on sinning as if Jesus never died for our sin. To stand in the doorway is to go on sinning as if Jesus never forgave us of our sin. And to stand out on the porch is to go on living as if Jesus never empowered us to abstain from sin. But to come all the way inside, to let him all the way in, it's just, it's to abide in him. It's to practice righteousness because he is righteous. It is to be, again, the statement, to be born new, to be born again, to be made new, to be made a new creation. And the reason I bring up this idea of being born again, again and again, is because we're going to end here with 1 John chapter 3. I'd encourage you to read um, Romans uh, 2, 3, and 4 this week. I wanted to preach on it, but we didn't have time. So I'm just going to focus here on 1 John chapter 3 as we wrap this up. So this, again, is John, the same one who gets the vision of the end from Jesus and writes the letters to the churches. Here, around probably the same decade of his life as a very old man, John is writing to churches that he oversees, and he says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sin. And in Jesus, there is no sin. I think some of you need to sit on that for a minute. Jesus appeared to take away sin. And in Jesus, there's no sin to be found. It says in verse 6, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. And then he says, no one who keeps on sinning even knows Jesus. Says they haven't seen him or know him. Remember Jesus said, depart, depart from me. I don't know you. So what John says is if you keep living in this life of perpetual, unrepentant sin, you don't even know Christ. John says that little children. Remember, he's a very old man. He's earned the right to call everybody under 80 a little kid. So he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. He's saying the only way we can be righteous to any extent, it's only because he is, not us. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. If Jesus is supposed to be our Lord, but if we reject our Lord by living in this continuous sin, what John is saying is that the devil is actually your Lord. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 8 here is one of the most concise mission statements of Jesus Christ. It says, the reason that Jesus appeared, the reason he existed, the reason he came, the, Jesus, the reason that Jesus appeared was to actually destroy the works of the devil. See, Jesus comes to save you, to rescue you, to save me, to rescue me by his grace. He comes to save us. He comes to destroy in us the works of the devil. But so many of us as Christians are actually busy building up the works of the devil. Are we partnering with the devil? Or do we want his works actually destroyed in our life? He says in verse 9, no one born of God, that's this born idea, 
born again idea. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. And he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. He's been born again. He's a new creation. By this, it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother of God. Well, this seems pretty harsh. Because I have a problem with this verse. The problem I have with this verse is me. The problem with this verse is I haven't gone a day without sinning in my entire life. And if you say, well, pastor, I have, check your heart. That was the sin right there. This doesn't mean that as a Christian, you won't ever sin. This doesn't mean as a Christian that you won't fail the Lord. Because Christians fail the Lord daily. We don't make mistakes. We don't slip and fall. We don't stumble and fall into sin. We willingly in our hearts choose to disobey God. You don't accidentally sin. It's something that we choose, regardless of how deep in our heart we're choosing. We sin as Christians, but here John's letting us know, guys, Jesus died for that. Jesus died for your sin. You can't be out. You can't be on the porch. You can't be in the doorway. You've got to be all in. You can't be lukewarm. You can't be cold. You actually have to be hot. You can't ride the fence. Either Jesus has forgiven your sins or you're spitting at his cross while he's dying to forgive you of your sins. So you and I will sin. But being a Christian is this. Being a Christian is hearing God's voice. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't say if anyone hears the knocking, does he? He says, if anyone hears my voice, he's talking to a Christian. If anyone hears my voice and they come to the door and open, I'll come in. Christians know the voice of God. Christians are convicted of sin. Christians are convicted of their sin. Some of us sin so much as Christians that we can turn off the conviction but it's not really off. We can grow numb to our conviction, but it's very much still there. Being a Christian is being convicted and repenting of sin. To repent of sin, you have to acknowledge that your sin is sin. You can't celebrate your sin and repent of sin at the same time time. You can't show off your sin or be proud of your sin or find all of your identity and worth in your sin and repent of it. That doesn't make sense. Repenting is acknowledging it's actually sin. A Christian desires to abstain from sin. Will a Christian always abstain from sin? No. A Christian desires to abstain from sin. So the most conversation, the most frequent conversation I get into as a pastor is people who are worried that they have lost their salvation. It is people who are worried that they aren't truly saved. That, that's a whole big topic. But here's usually how that conversation goes down. Hey, whatever your name is, I hear you telling me that you're worried you're not saved. That's right, I am. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Yeah, that's why I'm so worried. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I'm so worried about it. Do you trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin? Yes, yes, I want it so bad. Okay. Someone who is cold, someone who is lukewarm, will not be concerned about their salvation. People who have trusted in Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit, are like, am I saved? That's actually a sign that you are most likely indeed saved because that's the Spirit of God working in you, convicting you of sin, 
making you desire to be righteous and you are being born again. And I can't judge your salvation, but I can say that if you're worried, if you're saved or not, it's actually a pretty good sign that you're saved or on your way to salvation because you're actually, you actually care. People who aren't Christians don't care. People who are lukewarm don't care. People in the yard don't care. People on the porch don't care. People in the doorway don't care. But if you're concerned, what, what is it you're concerned about? What is the Holy Spirit actually asking you to do? Well, here, here it is. And being a Christian is hearing God's voice. Being a Christian is being convicted of sin. Being a Christian is repenting of sin. Being a Christian is desiring to abstain from sin. And, and here's the big thing. Being a Christian is submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit to abstain from sin. The same God who forgave you of sin can empower you from sin. You are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Shall we continue to sin, Paul says, so that we get more grace? And he says, may it never be. You're dead to that. You're alive in Christ. Your old self is crucified on the cross with Christ. It's been buried in his tomb. And when he rose again, he rose to give you new resurrected life. And when you were baptized, you were just simply living that out and showing what Jesus already did for you. That side of you is dead. And so a lot of people, if they're really on the fence about Jesus, they'll say things like, if I were to give my life to Jesus, then I couldn't sin anymore. Okay, your priorities are mixed up a little bit. But here's the deal. It's not that if you give your life to Jesus, you can't sin anymore. It's that if you give your life to Jesus, you don't have to sin anymore. It's that if you give your life to Jesus, you're actually not a slave to sin anymore. And that's why Jesus gave us the keys to the kingdom that we talked about last week. Whatever you bind on earth, your sin will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, your freedom will be loosed in heaven. You and I have keys over sin. And the keys are the keys of the kingdom. And it is exhibited through the deposit that is within us, the power of God, the spirit of God who lives within us, who wants to fill us and overflow from us and give to us spiritual gifts and comfort us and encourage us and empower us and embolden us to spread the gospel. If you're a Christian, you've got the spirit and you don't have to sin anymore. It no longer has dominion over you. You're not a slave. But as a Christian, you can't stand in the doorway. I'll ask Ryan to come up. He's going to close us with a couple of songs in worship.